Support comes from Empower Missouri, providing in-person and virtual training to become an advocate for Missourians living in poverty. Registration for Empower Missouri's March 27th Advocacy Day is at empowermissouri.org WOA. John Wood served as a Missouri U.S. attorney and as a key figure on the January 6th committee. But now he's stepping into the electoral arena to run as an independent candidate for Missouri's U.S. Senate seat. Wood joins us to break down his candidacy and talk about why he breaks the mold from other independent or third-party contenders. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking Podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. We have to talk about things that matter to people. I've tried to bring that same aggressive iconoclast style with me to uh, the United States Senate. I think my district is a model for the state. We put Missourians first. You just kind of have to find the common ground with people. I believe that this district deserves someone who represents their values. After I came back to St. Louis, I started thinking that I could have a bigger role on the change that I wanted to make. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me from Kansas City, he is with the Midwest Newsroom. This is Steve Vockrat. Jason, good to be with you. And joining us, he is, I, I don't know if you're officially an independent candidate for the United States Senate, but you turned in a heck of a lot of signatures yep. to get to that point. Our guest today is? John Wood. Mr. Wood, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Um, before we get into issues and kind of the machinations of your campaign, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself, what you've done before this race, and why you're running for the United States Senate? Sure. Uh, I'm a native Missourian, in fact, a sixth-generation Missourian. Uh, grew up in St. Louis County, but uh, married somebody from Kansas City, so we're living in Kansas City now. Uh, my first job out of college was uh, for then Senator Jack Danforth of Missouri, who is uh, one of my two political heroes, both then and now. My two political heroes throughout my life have been Ronald Reagan and Jack Danforth. Uh, and uh, I've spent much of my career in public service. I was U.S. Attorney for the Western District of Missouri and uh, most recently worked as a senior investigative counsel for the January 6th committee. And I'm running as an independent uh, for the U.S. Senate in Missouri, because I believe that our country is more divided now than it's ever been during my lifetime, and nowhere is that more evident than in this race. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, the voters, if they didn't have an independent candidate, would be forced to choose between, uh, on the Republican side, somebody who's very extreme and very divisive and an election denier, and on the Democratic side, somebody who would support Chuck Schumer for majority leader, as well as the Biden, Schumer, and Pelosi policy agenda, which is really out of step with what most Missourians want. And I think while Missouri is generally a conservative state, most people are within the mainstream. And I'm a mainstream common sense conservative. And I think that best represents the views and values of Missouri voters. John, talk to us a little bit about how you interpret yesterday's election results in Missouri for the Senate, and pre focusing primarily on the, 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 the Republican contest, um, given that that's how you identify politically. Um, what do you think voters communicated with the primary result that we saw uh, on Tuesday night? 
Yeah, so I thought that all three of the leading candidates for the Republican nomination were really running the same campaigns, basically. They were all trying to be as far right as possible, use wedge issues and be as divisive as possible, uh, play up to President Trump as much as possible with the hope of getting his endorsement, which no one quite succeeded at given the unusual endorsement. That it was the Eric's, the Eric's, the three, yeah, the three Eric's, although I don't know if Eric McElroy was really the beneficiary of that, but you know what, he can, he can, when, when, when somebody is giving his eulogy, he can say that President Trump endorsed him for Senate. There you go. <laughs> uh, so all three of the, the leading candidates for the Republican nomination were kind of campaigning the same way. So there's not that much to read into it other than they all thought that the best way to get the nomination was to be as extreme and divisive as possible and to uh, try and follow in Trump's footsteps as much as possible. So no matter which of the three ended up winning, that would have still been the same message that would come out of it. Uh, and so that's why I was sort of indifferent to who the Republican nominee was among those three. So uh, that's why I think, you know, no matter which of the three ended up getting the nomination, it was important that there be a mainstream common sense conservative running as an independent. Well, and jumping off of that, when you and I spoke, when you jumped into this race and, and, and made it official that you were going to be running for Senate, and, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but I got the feeling when I talked that you kind of seemed to focus your concerns about the GOP field in the Senate race uh, around Eric Greitens. I felt like your comments were kind of zeroing in on uh, his particular aspects, maybe more so than uh, Vicki Hartzler or Eric Schmidt. And so I'm wondering if Eric Greitens losing the way he did, do you, do you fear that that narrows your path at all um, as, a, as an independent candidate, uh, given that you could argue that Greitens represented perhaps some of the more alarming aspects of, uh, of the direction that the GOP has been heading in Missouri? Well, I certainly don't think it changes my message or my strategy at all. Uh, I think perhaps if Brightons had become the nominee, fundraising might have been a little bit easier because I think there'd be a lot of people who would say that Eric Brightons, given his personal baggage, can't serve in the U.S. Senate. And so I think it maybe would have gotten a little easier to raise more money that way. But uh, the message that we're hearing from uh, Eric Schmidt, leave aside the the personal baggage and the personal scandals, but the message is really the same, whether it's Eric Schmidt or Eric Greitens. They're both divisive and extreme and playing to, or played to a small sliver of the Republican base in order to win uh, the nomination. Uh, so I don't think that that represents so the views and values of most mainstream Missouri voters. So one of the reasons why I have been a bit skeptical of this is not because like I don't think that you're running like a viable real campaign. Any independent campaign that has Jack Danforth behind it and millions of dollars worth of television ads, of course I'm going to take it seriously. But Missouri just does not have a political tradition of supporting independent or third party candidates when it comes to statewide offices. In fact, the last time an independent ran for Senate was Craig O'Deer, who got like 2% of the vote. How do you think that you are going to be a factor and a viable candidate when the votes are tallied in November, given that history and tradition I just alluded to? 
Yeah, I think this race is different than all, all the other races, including Craig O'Deer's race, uh, for several reasons. Uh, one is uh, that the Republican nominee, Eric Schmidt, is so openly extreme and divisive, and in particular, you know, is wanting to overturn the 2020 presidential election. You know, he challenged it in court, but then continues to say when he gets to the US Senate, he wants to investigate fraud in the 2020 election. He won't let it go. So you've got a, a very extreme uh, divisive candidate for the Republican side. Uh, for the Democratic side, you've got somebody who's obviously going to support Chuck Schumer and is out of touch with uh, Missouri voters. And then, as you pointed out, I have the support of Senator Danforth, which includes not just the, the tremendous reputational support that he brings to the table, but also significant financial resources. And so I, I don't think that anybody uh, has really tried this in Missouri, at least that I can think of, where they had not just a you know viable candidate and a strong message, but also the financial support that I'm going to have uh, from Senator Danforth and others. So I'm, I'm thinking a little bit about Kansas here, since it's the neighboring state and I'm in Kansas City and you're in Kansas City, so you're familiar with it. Um, I think back to um, when there was an independent candidate who Greg Orman, who ran against uh, uh, he ran against Pat Roberts and mm -hmm. the Democrat, the, the Democrat in that race dropped out. So it cleared the field for an independent candidate. But he had also spent uh, quite a bit of time laying some groundwork uh, for his candidacy. And you're going to have you have a little less time or quite a bit less time uh, before the before the general election. Do you wish you would have gotten into the race sooner? Um, and is it something that you had contemplated uh, long before you got in the race? Yeah, I. I... I don't wish that I'd gotten in sooner uh, for two reasons. One, the, the work that I was doing on the January 6th committee was extremely important. And so I thought it was important that I continue that up until when I did. But then also, I don't think that there would have been a lot of attention to the general election until after the primaries, no matter how early I started. So I, I think you know today being the day after the primaries is really the first day of the general election campaign. And even if I'd started months before, I think people probably would have said, well, I'll worry about that when we know who the nominees are and then I'll start thinking about what I'm gonna do in November. I don't think people would have thought much about what they were gonna do and how they're gonna vote in the general election uh, before the primaries anyway. And this, um, this is a question I'd be asking Mr. Danforth if he were on this call uh, as well. And I think that you guys express similar ideas and I think concerns about the direction of the the Republican Party and where the where the party has gone, and one thing I always kind of wonder when I hear that is, if if the Republican Party's gone in a certain direction, why not affiliate as a Democrat and run on a major party platform? Is that something that ever entered your calculations? Is that something that you would have ever considered? No, I really couldn't do that because um, while I have serious concerns about some of the trends in the Republican Party and particularly the effort to overturn the 2020 election, which I think is inconsistent with our constitution and our democracy to try and overturn a valid presidential election. I ideologically, I just don't align with the Democrats. I believe in limited government. Uh, I believe in keeping taxes low. I believe in fiscal responsibility. I believe in strong law enforcement, a strong national defense and judges who are gonna interpret the law, not make the law. And so I just wouldn't fit in the Democratic party because I don't believe in the same things that they do. 
And that kind of gets into, like, I think the key question about your candidacy, like, what type of voters are you trying to attract here? Are you setting your sights more toward traditional Republican voters who are disaffected by the direction of the party? Are you also looking for Democratic voters who are unimpressed with the current state of specifically the Missouri Democratic Party? Yeah, it's both. I think there are a lot of a lot of people in both parties, as well as a large number of independents who are really tired of the choices that they're being presented by the two major parties. So while I am, you know, a, a mainstream common sense conservative, I think I'm going to appeal to people who are left of center as well, who are sort of disillusioned with the Democratic Party. So I think, you know, most people, whether they're left of center, or right of center in Missouri, are within the mainstream and want to send somebody to Washington who's really going to get things done and who's going to reach across the aisle and work with people both in their own party and from the other party to get things done for our country and for Missouri. I, I want to ask about something else that I read in various news articles about your candidacy. It, those mentioned that you recently moved to Jackson County after living in the Washington, D.C. area for a long time. How, how long were you living in Washington, D.C. before you moved to Jackson County, first of all? Yeah, so uh, I was uh, last living in Jackson County at the end of President Bush's administration when I was U.S. attorney. So I spent about 12 years in uh, Washington, in the Washington, D.C. area. And I answered Senator Danforth's call for somebody to step up and to uh, run as a, you know, a Republican running as an independent who would best represent the views and values of uh, Missouri voters. And so I came home to Missouri for this race. So I, I would argue that the whole question of like residency is kind of an overrated political issue in Missouri. I mean, we saw that with Josh Hawley a couple of times. But do you anticipate that if your campaign starts gaining traction, that the fact that you have it, you just moved back here for the first time since George W. Bush's administration is going to be a liability for you? I think it's something that my political opponents will certainly try to use, but I think most voters know that there are bigger issues in this race. I mean, they're, they're really monumental issues in this race. So, for example, um, Eric Schmidt trying to overturn the 2020 election, I believe is inconsistent with our Constitution and our democracy. So what's more important to voters? Somebody who's going to stand up for our democracy and our constitution or the issue of whether somebody lived outside the state for part of their adult life. Uh, and then similarly, I think on the democratic side, um, you know, we're seeing huge inflation that's cutting into people's paychecks. It's really hurting people. And I think it's in large part because of the excessive spending from the Biden administration and the Democrats. And so that's a bigger issue to people than whether I lived outside the state for several years. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with John Wood, an independent candidate for the U.S. Senate. And we're back on Politically Speaking with John Wood. He is running as an independent for the United States Senate. It was a great segue because now we're just going to dive straight into issues. And I want to, you to talk a little bit about your role in the January 6th committee, what you did for it, and how you think this factors into this campaign. Sure. I was a senior investigative counsel and also uh, of counsel to Representative Liz Cheney, who is the Republican vice chair of the committee. Uh, and so I had sort of two roles. One is to directly advise Representative Cheney, and the other was to uh, help lead the investigation 
uh, by the staff of the committee. And so it was interviewing witnesses, uh, seeking, obtaining, and reviewing documents, going through the evidence to help understand what happened on January 6th, and not just in terms of the physical attack on the Capitol, although that was tremendously important because you know lives were lost and police officers were injured, but also to understand the attack on our democracy to make sure it doesn't happen again. I'm curious if your work on that committee, how that's formed or maybe changed your view about the Trump administration, um, both generally and with respect to the stance that it's taken about the propriety of the 2020 election. Well, I certainly learned a lot about what happened. Um, you know, I'm a Republican, but I believe in democracy and part of living in democracy means you have to accept the results of an election whether your party wins or loses. And in this case, the Republican party and Donald Trump lost. There's just no evidence whatsoever of widespread voter fraud that could have affected the outcome of the election. And so to me, it's essential that people stand up for democracy and say, we're gonna respect the results of an election, even if our side loses. And let me just state, and I've stated stated this on podcasts with Republican and Democratic candidates, I 100% agree with you. Joe Biden won the election. And I I make that statement not as a value judgment against former President Trump. But from my experience of covering disputed elections, you need to have evidence to present in front of like the judicial branch that would be enough to overturn an election. Uh, For example, there was an election in St. Louis, which was decided at initial count by one vote. They found out a bunch of people voted in that election when they shouldn't have. They overturned that election, had a new one. Nothing reaches that threshold in the 2020 election. So I, I agree with you. But the reality is there's a lot of voters in Missouri who do believe that the election was stolen and believe everything that Trump says. And I guess my question is, do you think that there is room in Missouri for somebody who feels that Trump's action on January 6th was wrong and that is saying declaratively that the 2020 election was not stolen. Yes, I think politicians need to lead and not just, uh, you know, look at which way the wind is blowing. You know, I'd love to know what Eric Schmidt really thinks about what happened in the 2020 election. I don't know if he's actually bought into the lie that it was stolen or if he's just saying that because he knew that's what he had to do to try to win in the primary, but either way, he's just flat out wrong. And, and we need politicians, we need leaders who are gonna stand up and tell the truth to the voters. And uh, if enough people had the courage to do that, then I think people would see what really happened and we would be able to put to rest this issue about the 2020 election. Talk to us a little bit about how you view the performance of the current presidential administration. I mean, on one hand, they've encountered a number of what I would argue uh, are some fairly unprecedented challenges. Um, uh, the war in Ukraine, the war in Ukraine with Russia being one of them, um, you know, the ongoing pandemic uh, as well. But you also have these issues with inflation, um, gas prices, consumer product prices uh, that is dragging his, uh, you know, Joe Biden's popularity and arguably becoming a liability for Democrats all over the country. And how do you parse out and view how this administration has uh, has done so far? 
Yeah, I mean, there's there's a reason why President Biden is so unpopular right now. And I think his performance has been very disappointing. I thought that he was going to come in and govern as more of a moderate because that's the way he campaigned. He campaigned as somebody who was going to be more of a moderate and a consensus builder and try and reach across the aisle. And so I thought he was going to try to do uh, some things on more of a bipartisan basis. And he's gone the exact opposite direction, which is a, a go it alone approach by the Democrats that he doesn't want to try to find common ground and pass legislation with bipartisan support. And there have been a few exceptions to that. Uh, but for the most part, it's been a go it alone Democratic approach. And the spending in particular, I think, has been just really off the charts. And I think that contributes to the inflation that we're seeing. And as I was saying earlier, that cuts into people's paychecks. So we're seeing 9% inflation, but people's paychecks aren't going up 9%. So that means they have less buying power. So I think it goes without saying, based on that answer, you probably would you have voted for the American Rescue Plan, first of all? Uh, no, I would not. And you I would assume then you wouldn't have supported the Build Back Better Act, which kind of withered and died. Is that also correct? No, that's correct. What about the infrastructure bill that Senator Roy Blunt ended up supporting? Yeah, I, you know, I that's a tougher one because I do think that our infrastructure needs uh, rebuilding. Uh, and in general, I applaud Senator Blunt for being part of uh, sort of a governing coalition to reach out across the aisle and get things done. So I can understand that he decided to compromise, even if it's not exactly the bill that he would have wanted. But I think I probably on the infrastructure bill would have voted no, because it's just too much spending. But um, you know, I think that's a tougher question because I do think there is a need for some spending and some significant spending to help repair our infrastructure. Uh, what would you specifically do to reduce inflation? It seems like a lot of and, and I'm not an economist, so I'm just kind of like coming at this from an outside observer standpoint. But it seems like inflation has been exacerbated by the pandemic and by supply shortages and by a lot of things that just seem out of legislative control. Am I wrong on that? Well, I do, I do think that anytime there are economic changes, there are a lot of things that contribute to it besides just the actions by the government. So I, I'm not gonna place all of the blame for our inflation on Joe Biden and the Democrats, but I do think they exacerbated it with excessive government spending. Um, I, I, I understand the desire to spend money to help keep the economy going during a pandemic, but I think we spent way too much and that contributed to the inflation that we're seeing. I want to turn to a different topic, one that I think is kind of front and center in a lot of people's minds, given the primary election yesterday in the neighboring state of Kansas, um, where of overwhelming and I think unexpected majority of Kansans voted to um, preserve as a constitutional right uh, access to an abortion. Um, and you referenced earlier when you were talking about Democrats, um, you, know, you, made a, you made a reference to you know, their views about the judiciary. And I'm wondering, A, two-part question, one, how you feel about um, access to abortion. And B, given that you're a lawyer uh, and, and, and you study these things, whether you think that the U.S. Supreme Court got it right on the Dobbs decision earlier this year. So I do think that the Supreme Court got it right on the Dobbs decision. I think the issue of abortion, while 
a very difficult and emotionally charged issue is one that should be decided by the people's representatives, not by unelected judges. And uh, I don't think there's anything in the US constitution that gives a right to an abortion. Uh, my own personal views on abortion is that while I have the greatest respect for the dignity of women who are faced with an unwanted pregnancy, I do believe that life begins at conception. So I am pro-life, but I do believe in exceptions for rape, incest, uh, life of the mother and severe health risks of the mother. So the Dobbs decision in Missouri means that abortion is basically banned for every reason except medical emergencies. Like, and there are a lot of people I've talked to, and they're primarily on the Democratic side, but there's even some people who I think may think abortion is wrong, who think that that's way too extreme. Would you support federal legislation that would allow abortions in the case of rape or incest in every state in the union? So I'd like to see the Missouri law be amended to allow the exceptions that I just mentioned. So rape, incest, life of the mother, as well as severe health risks to the mother. Um, and, and so I would support a change to the state law. I, I don't know that we need a one-size-fits-all law from the U.S. Congress. I think it's uh, something that's better decided by the states. Having grown up in St. Louis and uh, lived in Kansas City uh, a few years ago and now again, um, you're, you're not unfamiliar with the problems that both of those cities, and I think other places in Missouri, frankly, as well, have with the issue of violent crime. Uh, particularly violent crime with guns. And, you know, there's been some legislation passed this year in the in the vein of gun control. But I want to, I want to get a sense of what your views are on the access to and availability of guns and whether there is room in your mind for any legislation around controlling it or restricting it any further. Yeah, so I, just to start off, my general view is I do believe the Second Amendment gives an individual right to bear arms, and I will certainly defend the rights of you know, Missourians and all Americans to have firearms to protect themselves and their families, as well as for sporting purposes. Uh, but I think we need common sense gun control. So I applaud Senator Blunt for being part of a bipartisan coalition to help pass the red flag law uh, legislation to help take guns out of the hands of the most dangerous people. Uh, well, this has been a question I've been asking a lot, and it's a niche issue, but I, I have a child who, had, let me rephrase that. I've been asking this of a lot of candidates, and I know that this may seem like a niche issue, but as the father of somebody with a developmental disability, I feel like this is a pretty fundamental question when it comes to guns. A lot of Republicans and even some Democrats have said that the problem around the mass shootings is around mental health. And they're kind of insinuating that people with certain mental health diagnoses should not have access to guns. And I certainly understand that if there is a nexus between that mental health condition and violence. But what I have a lot of misgivings about is just a carpet declaration that somebody with a mental health diagnosis can't get a gun when there's no nexus to violence. Frankly, I think that's a 14th Amendment violation right there. So again, I know that this is a wonky question, but I noticed a lot of disability activists have been really pushing back against this type of thing. And I'd be interested in your thoughts about this. 
Well, I, I don't know the details of the red flag law, but I, you know, in general, would draw a distinction between people who have uh, mental health issues that suggest a tendency towards violence versus people who just may have a, a mental impairment of some kind that does not in any way make them dangerous to others. Um, but, but I don't know enough about the details of the legislation that was passed to know exactly where they draw those lines. Another issue that has actually become pretty active in Congress is whether to codify the Supreme Court decision about same-sex marriage into law. Um, I don't know where that's going to be going now because it seems like that's lost a lot of traction ever since this new version of Build Back Better, which is known as like the Inflation Reduction Act, has come up. But what would be your posture toward that if you were a senator and you had to vote on whether to codify that decision? So in terms of same-sex marriage, um, I do not believe that it is a constitutional right in our U.S. Constitution. So I think the Supreme Court got it wrong in saying that is a constitutional right. But at the same time, as a policy matter, I do support uh, the right to same-sex marriage. So I think that uh, it should be allowed uh, and it should be in the law. I just don't think it's something that unelected judges should have decided. I think that gets to another major part of being a U.S. senator, and that's confirming judges, particularly judges to the Supreme Court. What would be kind of your thought process that goes into whether you vote yay or nay on a judge, especially one as important as a Supreme Court justice? Yeah. So as I said earlier, I believe the judges should interpret the law and not make the law. So my own approach to what a judge should do is, you know, what's sort of been described as a strict constructionist or originalist. And so um, while I have a lot of criticism of President Trump and some of the things he did, particularly regarding January 6, I think that by and large, he did a great job of selecting people for the federal bench. Uh, the harder issue is what I would do, you know, under the Biden administration, where uh, President Biden is nominating people for the court where I have a different philosophy of what a role of a judge is. But at the same time, I do think elections have consequences. And I think that uh, there should be a certain amount of deference given to the president. And so I, I probably would vote in favor of confirming many of the Biden nominees, even though I might have a different view than they do of what the role of a judge should be. And I want to drill down a little bit more on that question about the role of a, a judge, particularly, you know, in a in a in a appeals court district or a uh, you know the Supreme Court certainly, um, you know, because yes, the Constitution set out a number of rights, um, and but time has evolved, and you know the society has changed, and certain things have changed, uh, certain attitudes certain, uh, have. Have, have evolved over time. And there's things that are in the original constitution that we don't do anymore. And so I wanna kind of get a better sense if I can about your view of how to interpret both the existence of the constitution when what's been set out in the bill of rights and the amendments and so forth versus just how society changes and how we interpret what rights we have now versus a couple hundred years ago. Yeah, so certainly society has changed and the, the facts of cases are now very different than they would have been you know, 200 years ago. But I believe that um, the law as set out by the framers 
remains the law of the land unless we choose to change it through an amendment to the Constitution. Uh, I don't think that judges on their own should have the power to uh, just decide they're going to update or modernize the Constitution to fit their own uh, particular perspectives. And so that's why I think most things shouldn't be decided by the courts. They should be decided by the people's representatives. And we do update who our representatives are. Uh, that's why we have elections every two years for the House and every six years for the Senate and every four years for president and, you know, have similar arrangements in most state legislatures as well as you know local governments and so i think more things should be decided by the people's representatives rather than by the unelected judges right but they still have to make certain decisions about you know things that now have come into an exist come into an existence so i think about you know some recent supreme court rulings and these don't get quite the the headlines that um you know some of the topics that we've discussed but for example they have made decisions that alter how the Federal Trade Commission can work and, you know, to the extent to which they can seek uh, restitution, um, the structure of the Consumer Protection Financial Bureau being another mm -hmm. example. And so I, I struggle just as a citizen to interpret, you know, what is that, what is that role for a Supreme Court justice? And since, you know, you're running for a position of having a vote potentially, um, on a Supreme Court justice, and I'm not, uh, I just want to kind of understand a bit better, uh, since that's such a, become such a crucial topic. And there's a lot of criticism, frankly, that the Supreme Court has been politicized um, in the last 20, 30 years in ways that maybe it wasn't before. Well, there have been criticisms of the Supreme Court for being politicized for, you know, generations now, uh, certainly under Earl Warren, when, uh, the court was going in a very liberal direction. It was criticized for being political. I think that what a lot of the court's doing today is undoing some of the more political actions of previous uh, versions of the Supreme Court. But to your your broader point, um, you know, certainly things circumstances change. And so, for example, the you know the founders never would have envisioned the internet, but the First Amendment still applies on the internet but we have to apply it to new circumstances that they couldn't have imagined. And so I think that is a challenge for judges, but that's why the constitution speaks in broad terms and uh, provides a general framework. And I think, you know, some of the most important things in our constitution are our separation of powers, our checks and balances, so that there's a, a process uh, for governing as opposed to trying to spell out everything in the constitution. And that's why Congress, uh, or better yet, in many cases, state and local governments need to be the ones who make these decisions uh, and can update uh, things to address modern circumstances. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Politically Speaking. And thank you, Steve, for being a, a very excellent first time guest host of this show. Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. You can follow all of our stories at stlpr.org. Steve, how could people follow you on Twitter, and how could people follow the Midwest Newsroom? So I'm on uh, Twitter at Steve Vokrot, V-O-C-K-R-O-D-T, and you can find uh, the Midwest Newsroom's coverage uh, in public radio affiliates in Kansas, Missouri, Iowa, and Nebraska. And Mr. Wood, in addition to providing your social media information, how could people find out more about your campaign on on the on the World Wide Web? 
Yeah, best place to go is our website. It's johnwoodformo.org. And you can go on there and you can click on the buttons to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And we've got uh, videos on there as well so that you can follow the campaign. Thank you very much. And until next time, so long. <laughs>